Welcome back to Black and Published, a podcast for writers, poets, playwrights, and storytellers of all kinds. I'm your host, Nikisha Elise Williams, an award-winning author, two-time Emmy Award-winning news producer, publisher, all that good stuff. Today, we're talking with Naima Coster, author of What's Mine and Yours. Naima is the author of two novels. Her debut, Halsey Street, was a finalist for the 2018 Kirkus Prize for Fiction and long-listed for the VCU Cabell First Novelist Award. It was recommended as a must-read by People, Essence, Bitch Media, Well-Read Black Girl, The Skim, and the Brooklyn Public Library, among others. Her latest novel, What's Mine and Yours, is out today, March 2nd, 2021, from Grand Central Publishing. Naima's stories and essays have appeared in the New York Times, Quay Lee, the Paris Review Daily, The Cut, The Sunday Times, Catapult, The Rumpus, and elsewhere. She is a National Book Foundation 5 under 35 honoree for 2020. Naima has also taught writing for over a decade in community settings, youth programs, and universities. Most recently, she has taught writing in the MFA programs at the City College of New York, Antioch University in LA, and the University of Michigan. Naima writes the newsletter, Bloom How You Must, and she lives in Brooklyn with her family. In this conversation, we discuss what it means to be a woman outside the titles of wife and mother, how living your dream can sometimes be seen as a conscious decision to struggle, how the perception of race informs education, identity, love, marriage, and even motherhood, and why love should be regular, every day, and always in the air. Black and published family, let's welcome Naima to the show. Okay, so Naima, um, thank you for joining me on Black and Published, and congratulations on the publication of What's Mine and Yours. It is out today. Well, it will be once this interview comes out. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, and thank you for having me. You're very, very welcome. Um, I always like to start the podcast with this one question, you know, when did you know that you were a writer? Um, that's a good question, because I think it took a lot of different times for me to really get it and to accept it. I always wrote. Um, I wrote from childhood. I wrote novels and composition notebooks that I wanted to show to everybody. But I always treated my writing like a small part of me or something on the side, in part because I couldn't imagine it really being at the center of my life. I didn't have any models for that. You know, I think my family wanted me to pursue something that no one in my family had pursued before, like being a doctor or a lawyer, something that would be, you know, like lucrative and stable. And so I said to myself, I'll do that if I can keep getting good grades. And then like writing will be something I do maybe on the side for fun. Um, and I think it wasn't until college really that I started meeting um, other published writers that I thought this could be something that I could um, put at the center of my life. And part of that is professionally, but the other part is just having it be a practice that I devote as much time to as I can manage. So what was that experience when you were in college that you said, you know what, I think I'm going to, to shift in directions? Because how long did you try to, to go the doctor lawyer route? 
You know, I even I applied to medical school and got in and everything, <laughs> but I never went is, you know, that was the level of my denial. I think um, I it took a long time, I think, because I felt that I had been given so much opportunity that came at great cost in many ways. Like I was a scholarship kid at a private school. Um, my parents did pay tuition for the school, although it was you know, a big discount, but that was a hardship for them. And I felt very aware that um, I was given a great deal by them. And I think that you know the consequence of that, and also by the school, like I think the way I thought about it when I was a girl was they let me in, um, you know, and I felt indebted rather than entitled or deserving. And so I think it took a long time to feel that it was okay to pursue writing mostly because I liked it and I wanted it, I wanted to, and because it made me happy. I felt that um, I didn't think that I could do something just because it was pleasing to me and I found meaning and joy in it. You know, I think it took a lot of encouragement from friends, from teachers. It took having models and it took like a lot of like growth and wrestling on my part to, you know, like decide that although I had been given like all this opportunity, I could decide what to do with it. And I was like, I'm going to write fiction. (laughs) (laughs) Among other things, but that's like the main thing. I watched your, um, I guess your author talk with Quaylee when you first read the short story that inspired what's mine and yours. And you've mentioned there and, and even on social media that short stories aren't really your thing. And I also read Halsey street. So how did you begin formulating that novel and, and coming into the acceptance that, you know, I am a writer and I can make a living at this. Like, what were you doing at that time? Mm-hmm. Like, what was I doing? Like, to survive. Like, yes. like how, how are you living? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, a good question. Um, so I, when I was doing, when I was writing Halsey Street, I was like, I'm going to do graduate school as a way of piecing together as much time as I can to work on this book. So first I went to a master's program in English that was fully funded, which was great. Um, so I got a a little stipend and so I didn't go into any debt for that. Um, I also worked while, while I was in the program, but I didn't work full time. So I had a lot of time to devote to my studies. So I did a lot of tutoring. I worked as, I had lots of different gigs. Like I was a camp counselor. I was a barista. I did lots of different things, um, while I was in that program. And then I went on to the MFA which was not fully funded. Mm. Um, And I also continued to, um, for a year of the MFA, I had different gigs. And then the second year of the MFA, I started teaching, which was funded, which is good. So I had a year of debt. Palsy Street cost me a year of graduate (laughs) school debt. Um, But yeah, you know, I, I, I managed to survive in that time through funding from school and then when I didn't have that funding with loans um, and then you know I finished grad school and I had I had a manuscript and all this debt <laughs> <laughs> so then like what did your family say to you if they were putting all of these ideas on you or notions on you to like 
to go do the thing. Like you got accepted to medical school. You could be this doctor. What did, what did they say to you when you said, when you finally said, no, I'm, I have this MFA and I have this manuscript and I'm going to go in this direction. Like, what was the response? Yeah. You know, I think it was like astonishment and confusion. Like if you have this opportunity for stability and surefire upward mobility that comes with being a lawyer or a doctor, why would you pick something that maybe will be stable for you? Like, why would you do that? Why would you choose to continue to live, um, you know, like in the conditions that we've lived in, which was so hard to hear because it wasn't only a dig on my choices. It was like a dig on what they had accomplished too. Like sort of, why would you want to end up like us? Um, Which is so sad, I think, um, in some ways that kind of, um, I mean, I think they were acknowledging the ways that they've struggled, but there was also a part of me that was like, well, here we are, <laughs> and, you know, um, so I think, you know, it was, it was concern, it was frustration. And I think also something that I think through in my work too, is kind of like cycles of sacrifice across generation um, and kind of like the expectation that that will continue and continue. Like the next generation will be the one that um, gets to live your dream, (laughs) like the dream or live their dream, whatever it is, but like, it won't be you, right? Like it might not be you. Um, And, you know, I think I find myself in a position where through a lot of luck and privilege, I've been able to say like, no, like it's going to be me. Like I'm going to be the one um, who, who gets to do the thing that really matters to her. and I feel like fortunate for that. Um, and also try to speak about that publicly because I meet other people all the time who who feel similarly. Yeah, um, I can relate to, to leaving the stable job to do something as unstable as writing. And then me being independent is a whole nother level of crazy. But you brought up... Um, cycles of sacrifice across generations so since you went there we're gonna keep going down (laughs) going down that rabbit hole because i noticed that in halsey street with penelope and morella was the mother mireya yeah was the mother and like penelope having to come back to take care of her father and then maria you know leaving after all of the years and then it's very very noticeable in what's mine and yours but I think at the center all of all that is not just this, th- that it is a cycle of sacrifice, but it's the cycle of sacrifice by mothers and wives. Yes. So. <laughs> yeah. You know, I I do think a lot about that, about like women who who bear the brunt of showing up, of doing the work of raising kids and um, maintaining a home. Also, while working and trying to tend to their own sort of dreams and lives and um, the difficulty of that. I mean, I think it's, it's interesting how, how lonely all the women in my books are. Um, and what I mean by lonely is in some ways feeling like without like support or someone to hold them up. Um, and, you know, the only person who really has that and loses it, I think, across 
both books um, is my character Jade, whereas all of the other women who become mothers, Noelle, Lacey May, Mireya, you get the sense that like, even when they had their partners, their partners weren't fully present. They were preoccupied with something else, whether it was um, their art making or their record store in Halsey Street um, or, um, you know, an addiction in the case of Robbie from What's Mine and Yours. They all had the things that consumed their energies and um, some of those were struggles. Um, but it's different for Jade and for Ray um, because her partner Ray is a man with dreams, but it doesn't come sort of at the cost of his commitment to his family, which I think is rare, at least in my work. Um, yeah. What struck me about Jade, and I underlined this in chapter five is where she says, it was a terrible thing to choose your own life, to be willing to live it. And I didn't get the sense of loneliness from her. And maybe that's why at the end, and I'll just have to put a spoiler alert on this episode, <laughs> that Guy Nelson, when he comes back, it's like he needed his mother, but she needed herself. And mm-hmm. so they're always trying to reconcile that. So I always like when he would just say she turned and she disappeared and you didn't know where she went. It was like she's still living her life. She knows she has a son that she has to take care of, but she is refusing to to give herself up just yes. for him. Yes. Yes. I mean, I think that Jade is a character who I I'm really interested in because she's a mother who's mothering beyond what she knew. Like she's already giving her son more than she herself was given. Like she's thinking carefully about how to provide opportunity for him, um, how to make sure that the things that he's lost don't limit him for the rest of his life, which is something that nobody did for her. Um, And then the question is like, well, what do you miss? while you're focusing on the thing that you know was missing for you. And I think about this as a mom too. Like I'm thinking about all the things that like were missing from my childhood. And I'm like, all right, well, my baby's not going to miss those things, but what is it that I can't see or that I'm not aware of, you know, um, the thing that I'm missing. And I think the thing that she's missing is giving her son space, um, to be soft and to mourn what he has lost um, where she's trying to get him to continue to move forward. And then also I think that, you know, this is a place where I relate to the characters like in, in pushing the message that he needs to have a better life than she did. Like what's the message that she's sending about who he is already and who they are already. But I felt like in in her pushing that, and I've had this conversation with another author as well, is that she recognized that he would always be seen as a Black man. And so she was always trying to toughen him up so that the world didn't do it for him. So like towards the end, when he goes through that traumatic experience, like she's trying to to be his soft place, but she can't be too soft because she knows like this is just the beginning of what you're going to face. And he doesn't understand and he has resented her for so long since Ray that I was like, damn, are they going to make it? And I'm like, I know it's mother to son, but I'm just like, you know, are they going to make it? And like my son is six. And so I always try to think about, you know, how I was raised and things I can do for him. So, you know, when he gets in trouble at school for talking too much, I'm I'm not going to yell at him for that because I talk too much. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm like, well, if he did his work and he did the extra work and he's still bored, I I can't help you. 
mm-hmm. <laughs> with that. He he's six. So I I always I felt for for uh, for Guy in that way. I felt for Jade in that way. And so I was really happy to see the the ending where she says, you know, come here, my sweet baby. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm glad that you liked it. I I I like it too. I wrote it that way because I wanted, you know, I wanted them to have that that moment of tenderness and connection. And maybe, um, you know, I think some readers might say like, it comes too late. It comes so late. That's so sad. But I think that we don't always have those moments where we see face to face and connect deeply with the people that we love. So when it happens, I think that it is like a beautiful thing and a victory. But I don't know if I necessarily think it comes too late because I think as adult children, it's not until we become adults that we can see all of our parents' motivations. And then especially like when we become parents, a, a good girlfriend of mine just says, you know, I call my mom regularly and apologize for how I behaved <laughs> when I was a kid because now her son is taking her through and it's just like, oh my gosh, mommy, I'm so sorry I talked so much. I'm so sorry I wouldn't leave you alone. I'm so sorry I wouldn't, I, I kept bothering you when you just needed a minute to yourself. And so seeing that in, in, in Guy and Jade at the end where it's like, Jade has her house. She's with Leon. She's content. They each have their own spaces to go when they want to be alone. And then her son finally comes and understands, like, I finally get it. And she can embrace him. And it's it's not that all is forgiven, but it's just that, that there's an understanding. Like, you know, you were going through your own thing as a person. And, and that stands out that wives and mothers are still people mm-hmm. and still have their own lives outside of their children. Yes. I wanted to, I wanted to show that like all the ways that the people they were before the people they still are, the things that they want are intention um, with their trying to care for their children because they're things that, that they want for themselves as well. Um, So I really tried to show that for, for all of the mothers in the book. I have to ask because you posted that I Instagram post with those four lines that was uh-huh. the beginning of what's mine and yours. And I was like, I have all the questions. Oh, yeah. I'm like, <laughs> I don't even remember what those four lines are. Let me pull them up. Tell me, what are your questions? I was just like, when I finally finished the book, I was like, how? Because like, I'm an intense outliner. And where my outlines, they're not maybe, they're just like the, what the chapters will be. And then, you know, maybe snatches of conversation. But I was like, she has four lines about Lacey May <laughs> and these characters. And I don't even understand how the book came together. <laughs> well, I will say there were other planning documents between those four lines and me starting a draft. Like that was just me having a thought and I jotted down some things. But I I did quite a lot of planning. I'm a planner too. Okay, because like, I was I, like, yeah, tell me how. <laughs> yeah, I know there are people who say that it, you know, feels stifling to them, but I like it. Like I feel like having a sense of what I'm pouring into, like the shape of the vessel frees me up to explore because I know where I'm going or I know who's in the room. And I feel like that frees up space in my mind to like mm-hmm. wonder and imagine. And writing, writing a book is so hard because I yes. think there's just like <laughs> so many things you're trying to imagine at once. And my brain can only hold so many things. Like my brain can't imagine the room, the weather, the characters, their appearances, their interiors, what they're going to say to each other, what's going to happen and how that all fits into the next chapter, like all at once. So I try to break it down for myself and have some that I've thought about before I sit down and start 
crafting the scene or the chapter. So I did, I did a lot of planning for this book. Yeah. And I also wonder, because like you write about, like this book is not about Brooklyn the way Halsey Street was. It's set in Piedmont, North Carolina. I know you lived in the area for a while, but like for me, when I, for my books, I've written normally about where I live. And then the one book where I wrote about a different location, me and Google Earth were like the best of friends. And yeah. then eventually I traveled and my mom and I just drove around over and over and over again. I call them site surveys so that I could see because, I mean, I come from a television background. So I always think, you know, that they tell you right to the video. So as I'm writing a book, I'm thinking, okay, what do I see? And I write all of that down. So I was like, how, how did you get all of these different pieces to come together with the, the seasons and then the climate and then the area, I was like, I don't get it. <laughs> well, I love that idea of site surveys. I mean, everywhere, everywhere in the book down to like coffee shops or like a beach, like is based in some way on like a place that I've been. And so I wrote the book right after I left North Carolina, I spent three years there. And then my first year out of the state, I wrote the book. So it was okay. all very, very fresh to me. And I also missed North Carolina because I'd been there for three years. So it wasn't a very long time, but it was long enough that it became my home. You know, like I had connections there. So it was a way to like keep the places I'd been close to me. And then, you know, like the book briefly, you know, there's a chapter in LA and a chapter in Paris. And I'd also been to LA and Paris. So it was like a way to revisit those places because um, they were just like so so fresh to me. Okay. So I, I can't hold it up any longer. I want to have you read from the book. So a community in the Piedmont of North Carolina rises in outrage as a county initiative draws students from the largely black east side of town into predominantly white high schools on the west. For two students, Guy and Noel, the integration sets off a chain of events that will bond their two families together in unexpected ways over the span of the next 20 years. On one side of the integration debate is Jade, Guy's steely, ambitious mother. In the aftermath of a harrowing loss, she is determined to give her son the tools he'll need to survive in America as a sensitive, anxious young Black man. On the other side is Noelle's headstrong mother, Lacey May, a white woman who refuses to see her half-Latina daughters as anything but white. She strives to protect them as she couldn't protect herself from the influence of their charming but unreliable father, Robbie. When Guy and Noel join the school play, meant to bridge the divide between new and old students, their paths collide and their two seemingly disconnected families begin to form deeply knotted, messy ties. And their mothers, each determined to see her child inherit a better life, will make choices that will haunt them for decades to come. As love is built and lost and the past never too far behind, what's mine and yours is an expansive, vibrant tapestry that moves between the years from the foothills of North Carolina to Atlanta, Los Angeles, and Paris. It explores the unique organism that is every family, what breaks them apart, and how they come back together. Take it away. All right. The clinic was two floors, brick and a gray tiled roof. If not for the reflective windows, it could have passed for a squat and sprawling house. The building didn't unnerve Noelle until she entered the lobby and saw the receptionist encased in bulletproof glass. She slipped her ID through the shallow trough, waited to be buzzed in. 
It was only when they were in the waiting area that Noel realized the security wasn't to protect the staff from patients. It was in case someone came in with a gun, shouting about the sanctity of unborn life. Ruth seemed unfazed, fishing through a stack of magazines for something to read. She was dressed in her scrubs so that she could go straight to work after she dropped Noel off at Central. The appointment wouldn't take long. She'd be back before six period. I'm missing an English test, Noel said. That's all right. Think of all the things you'd missed if you weren't here. Noel had wondered whether Ruth would try and talk her out of it, but she hadn't tried, not even once. She reached for Ruth's hand and Ruth gave it without looking up from her magazine. When it was her turn, Ruth waved her off with a smile. The room was large and smelled of Castile soap and hot water, as if someone had just been in to clean. A quick and forceful nurse weighed her, took her vitals, sat in a chair across from the examining table to explain the procedure. It took a while for Noelle to recognize her. She looked so different in her mint green scrubs without her dark lipstick. She was the woman who had spoken at the town hall, the one who had pissed off Lacey May so bad that she decided to stand up and speak about the campaign. The nurse asked whether she had any questions. We'll go through the consent forms in a moment, she said, but only once you're ready and you understand. Your son goes to Central. Jade startled and looked up from her clipboard. She searched the girl's face and couldn't place her. Do you? Noelle nodded. My parents, they won't be informed, will they? The only people who know will be the people you tell, said Jade. You can tell everyone you know or no one at all for the rest of your life. It's up to you. The girl screwed up her face in concentration, folded her hands primly on her knees. Jade watched her and resisted the urge to say more. She gave her time. I'm ready, Noelle said finally and signed the forms. Jade explained they'd give her an exam. Then if everything looked good, they'd move on. She placed her hand on top of Noelle's knotted fingers to give her a pat and the girl started to weep. It wasn't that she was unsure or worried it would hurt. She wasn't afraid. It was this woman's hand, soft and brown and perfumed. It encircled her so easily, and it embarrassed Noelle how good it felt to have a woman touch her, an elder who was beautiful and warm and who had nothing to say. How did women get to be like this, so tender and wide open? Jade handed the girl tissues. When she had calmed down, Jade asked her how she had known about her son and the school. I don't know him, but I remember you, she said. My mother was at that big town hall. She's one of those concerned parents. She's a racist. Jade looked at her measuring. Well, we don't get to choose our mothers. If Noelle had to pick, she'd have chosen someone like this nurse, like Ruth. Your son, she said. What's his name? I'll stop there. Okay. What I like about the narrative and, and the intertwining of the families is the role that race plays. Because in the very beginning, you established that Lacey May does not see her three Latina daughters as Latina at all, even though Robbie is from Colombia. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. So I was just like, she, she, she just doesn't see it. And then towards the end, it's like Noelle sees herself as, as a person of color, but everyone just sees her as white. And so she's always trying to push back against that narrative, but it's, it, it, I guess I was wondering, like, you know, is this a commentary on how some people who can identify as minorities can easily pass? And 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 then that tension of, you know, of what passing means and whether they should take advantage of it. Uh, it was I was just really intrigued by that. 
Yeah. Well, I was thinking through a lot of things with the book. I was thinking through a lot of questions about Latinidad and Latinx identity. Um, I was thinking through like what it means to be white. Um, and, you know, like Noel um, is the sister who who looks white and presents as white, but she's the one who feels as connected, the most connected to her Latinx identity, but she moves through the world with the privileges of a white person. And it takes her coming to love G and understand anti-Black racism to have a kind of, um, like to get her kind of like naive version of woke. So like, what does that mean about her? What does that speak about, uh, what does that say about her experience? So I wanted to explore different questions related to Latinx identity, like what it means when they're siblings who all look different and are read differently and identify differently, what it means to be cut off from the parent who has that heritage um, to be aligned sometimes with whiteness um, and sometimes to resist it, right? Like Noelle gives people passes, like she gives Ruth the nurse she loves and admires passes. Um, and then sometimes she stands up for herself um, and for the people she loves. And that's really different than how Jade and G move through the world. And so I also wanted to explore relationships between people of color, um, you know, through, through marriages and partnerships where people's experiences align and have things in common and then also where they're different. Like I feel that sometimes we we talk about people of color like a monolith, like we all have the same experiences and face the same obstacles and prejudices and have the same privileges. And it's just not true. And I think, you know, as the country begins to talk in a more public way about systemic racism, the conversation still lacks nuance, right? Mm -hmm. It's still like white and black and black is a monolith and then other people of color are lost um, in that conversation. Um, and so I wanted to dig into some of those complexities in the book and, and really ask, ask questions. And that you did it in North Carolina, which is still the South. Um, um, and through school integration, which is still an issue kind of in North Carolina and even in the schools nationwide, schools are more segregated now than they ever have been um, because of, you know, privatization and all this other stuff. I thought it was really interesting that it was the kids coming together and the play from Measure for Measure, which doesn't have... <laughs> like any like any like true resolution it's just this weird Shakespearean thing kind of like the Tempest and it's just like here we are and it and it takes them to to kind of put those tensions aside even for a moment and mm -hmm. I was I, I guess I wonder do you see that happening in real life in the country that it's up to children who are now in class and in school and in workplaces with people of all kinds, brown, black, brown, white, whatever, and having to reckon with what race and racism is and is not in their life? Hmm. That's a good question um, of, of whether it's up to children or what children can do. I mean, I think that what I was, I was trying to point out through the book was that children are often the ones holding their parents accountable. Um, and the parents have, have so much power, 
you know? Um, and it's true that, that parents have had so much power in maintaining segregation and segregated schools. Like, I don't know if you listen to the Nice White Parents podcast that came out earlier this year from the New York Times, which was all about segregation in New York City public middle schools. Um, and the thesis of that, you know, that show was that it's nice white parents who who maintain it. Um, and so I think that that's partially what I was investigating, like how parents can uphold these oppressive systems with the defense that they're just doing what's right for their kids, right? They're like, well, what, they're my kids. I want what's best for them. And that can become a kind of shield to argue against opportunities for other people's kids. Um, and Nicole Hannah-Jones writes a lot about this and her work was really influential for me in thinking about this book because when you don't examine it, it seems kind of like unimpeachable. Like, well, all I have to do is best for my kids. Um, mm-hmm but it's used as a as an excuse to cover kind of all manner of of sins and injustices by by white parents with means. Yeah, I saw an ad for that podcast today while I was reading through the the, the um I get the New York Times newsletter and I was just like, oh I have this is something else I'm gonna have to listen to so that I hear you say that I'm definitely gonna add it to the list. I want to go back to the section you read because I just noticed it. So we're with Noelle and Ruth at the clinic and she's going to terminate her pregnancy. And then later on in the book, the the issue between her and G is the miscarriage. Is it because she had the abortion so early that she now feels this overwhelming sense of grief that she lost the baby that she wanted? Because I just noticed it. I was like, huh. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't imagine that. Like I didn't, I imagine the abortion as a part of her story. Um, and certainly something that she would be mindful of when she's older, um, and, and desperately wants to be a mother, but I, I don't see them as connected. And I don't think that Noelle sees them as connected. I was just trying to show kind of like a range of different experiences that women can have in their journey to motherhood. Um, so, um, for Noelle, that's lots of things for Noelle. That's abortion, pregnancy loss. She thinks about, um, adoption, all different kinds of things. So it was really just like different reproductive experiences that one woman can have over the course of her life. And of course, like she and Jade made different choices, um, with, which, um, which is noted in the book. Um, and I don't think the book is trying to, you know, like pass judgment or affirm either of those decisions, but just think through like what those decisions mean for those women. And I, I felt the same way. I didn't feel a judgment. I, I thought there might be a connection of why she was, she couldn't, I guess, snap out of it as fast as G wanted her to. And so he punished her for it. And that led to to the demise of their marriage. But I was, I just wondered if there was, you know, you think about all the things you had gone through. And then when you're desperate to try to have a child, you think about the child that you could have had that you didn't mm-hmm. and when you for so long ago. But all of those choices um, leading to one road. How has becoming a mother changed your relationship to the craft of writing? Because it was there in Halsey Street, but it's really apparent now in what's mine and yours. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, that's so interesting to hear you hear you say that. I'd love to hear more about what you noticed or what you think. Um, but yeah, you know, I wrote, I drafted this book when I was pregnant. Um, so there was, the themes were alive to me in a different way, pregnancy and, you know, all of the different 
things about pregnancy and, and embodiment were alive to me. And then I revised it in, you know, like the first year of my daughter's life. And so <laughs> I think, you know, my insights were different when I actually was a mom. So, you know, I, I, it was great to have a place to put some of the things that I'd noticed. Like, so, you know, the postpartum experiences in the book got harder (laughs) than they were in the first draft because I had an experience of that. Like, I think there was more, I was able to write in more like exhaustion and rage and difficulty and how that can coexist with, tenderness for a child and a deep sense of connection for a child you can be like full of rage and frustrated and adore your kid and I felt more in touch with that and I also felt much more connected to the difficulty of taking care of yourself and also having like a full range of expression for your emotions while you're responsible for a child. So, you know, something that I felt like I was able to write differently was Jade's experience of mourning and how much she felt that she had to keep a lid on things to protect her child. It's not because she doesn't, she thinks emotions are bad and that people shouldn't have feelings. You know, it's that she knows that she has to create a calm and stable environment for her child. And part of that means managing her own emotions, which is, terrifically hard like when you're having strong emotions um and so that I think is an insight that I wouldn't have had if you know I didn't have months with a small baby where I felt like I was falling apart but I was like how can I you know remain like a calm and stable presence for this baby so you know I think um it gave me some useful insight and connection I love that. I want to move into a quick speed round. I'm not sure how speedy it will be, but the questions that I have, we're going to try. All right, let's do it. I'll try to be speedy. Okay. Um, what is your favorite book? Oh, of all time? Um, or for the uh, moment. Okay. Um, the best book I read recently is Milk Blood Heat by Dantiel Moniz. She's a, she's a debut writer. It's a collection of stor- short stories set in Florida about girlhood and womanhood. It's so great. She's really wonderful. That's the best book I've read recently. She's great. I'm going to add it to the must-read list since yeah. I, I am in Florida. It has to go to the must-read list now. Um, yeah. Who is your favorite author? Um, can I give three? Can mm-hmm. I give like a like a little... Um, I'll say Edwidge Danticat, Jasmine Ward, and Zora Neale Hurston. Yes! I yeah, love all like, of them. Yeah, yeah, they're like, yeah. What is your favorite uh, movie? Oh, I love this movie called Short Term 12 um, with Brie Larson and Lakeith Stanfield. I think it was like both of their first big roles. It's about a woman who works at uh, like a short term care facility for kids in foster care. But it's about her kind of own childhood and trauma and experience and how that informs the way she works with the kids. It's really good. It's really, really good. And um, what is your favorite meal? Ooh, favorite meal. Can I say a burger? I I know like we we try not to eat meat um, because of climate and the climate change, climate change. Um, But a burger. I like an impossible burger too. Oh, yeah. 
but it, it, it's delicious. Yes. Um, <laughs> and what's mine and yours, you have this these things with Margarita always posting on her social media, which made me want to know, what is your relationship to social media? Because it kind of seemed like you love it, but you hate it, but you love it. I do. How did you know? Because <laughs> you know? I feel the same way. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, I, I think that I, I, we all curate so much even like our attempts at being authentic are really curated. And so sometimes I like to poke fun of that at that in like my own posts. But I think, you know, with, with Margarita, I really wanted to explore like how crafting a false version of your life can make you disconnected from like the the reality of your own life, how you can start to sort of like believe the lie or like believe the narrative. Yeah, when she sat down at the table where somebody had just recently left and posed with the food, I was like, wow, this is too much. Yeah. Um, Toward the end of the book, Noelle makes a statement about her little life. So I wanted to see, no, how do you see your life? Is it little? Is it big? And is that a good or a bad thing? Because I was kind of struck like, you know, my little life. And I was like, huh that makes me feel uncomfortable. Mm, That's so interesting. Um, I don't even remember that line, but it sounds right. I said, I think she's probably mourning. Is she mourning like the loss of what she, of their marriage and their comfortable little life? Is that where it is? No, I think she was just, um, she was talking about, you know, being on the coast. Let me see if I can Mm, pull it back mm -hmm. up because I have the page marked. All right. No, that sounds, that sounds familiar. Well, you know, I think about I think about this all the time, like in my writing, how how self-absorbed we can all be, like how like how like and and it makes sense, like how obsessed with our own problems and desires and loved ones we can be, and how that's true for everybody. And so I'm really interested in fiction and like writing with intensity about these small lives, small, cause they're like contained in just one person. And there's so many people in the world. And then a book like this is cool because it can show how everyone's individual journey affects like collective life or the life of a whole family. So in terms of my life, I mean, I definitely feel like my life is small right now, like during COVID in terms of like being contained in this apartment um, and contained in Brooklyn. Um, but it's certainly a life with like big feelings and, um, big ideas. And when I'm with my kid, you know, sometimes we feel cooped up and crazy in here, but sometimes it feels like really expansive. Um, even if we're just, you know, walking down the block. Okay. And then I have another question from the book. It's on page 302. So I'm going to find it. Um, you say love was regular. Love was every day. Is that the way that love should be? Um, I want to say yes. Um, I want to say yes right now. Um, that, you know, if love isn't something that is missing, um, if it's something that's just like constantly in the air, um, I think that's a good thing. Okay. And so my final question for my interviews So you have chosen this life as a writer and become very successful at it. Congratulations. Oh, thanks. So when you're dead and gone, how would you like someone to write about your legacy? What would you like them to say? Oh, that is an amazing question. Um, 
I think that I would, I would like them to say that um, my books um, looked at what it means to live together, whether that's like in a family or in a community, a city, in a partnership, and looked at how that's like um, difficult and tough, but also how that can be sweet and that the books in some way like reflect reflect reality. Um, that's my hope that it's not just sort of like an amusement, but that it grasps at something real about what it is to, to be alive and to, to live with others and to love others. Does that mean that the next book from Naima Coster is already a work in progress? Um, it's a work in progress in the sense that I have planning documents, <laughs> so, um, which is a part of my process. So yeah, it's a it's in the it's in the phase where I'm thinking about it all the time. But you know, in these in these pandemic times and with a book coming coming out, I'm trying not to to push myself too hard to write the next thing and just have confidence that I will when there's some more space. Thank you so much. That was beautiful. Thank you for joining me today on Black and Published. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. No problem. Big thank you to Naima for being here today. Make sure you check out Naima's latest novel, What's Mine and Yours, out now, today, right now. And if you're not following Naima, follow her on the socials at Naima Coster on Instagram and at Zafatista on Twitter. That's Z-A-F-A-T-I-S-T-A, Zafatista. That's our show for the week. If you liked this episode and want more Black and Published, go ahead and hit that subscribe button on your podcast platform of choice. You can also leave us a rating, a review, let us know who you want to hear on the show, all of that. And you can also follow Black and Published at Black and Published on Instagram and Twitter. That's B-L-K and Published. And to keep up with me, head to newrights.com or follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Nikisha underscore Elise. That's our show. I'll highlight y'all next week. Peace. <laughs>